Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we are digging into the details of a triple murder that took place in 1960 in Star of Rock State Park, a brutal crime for which my client Chester Weger was convicted and spent over 60 years in prison. Today, we're going to be talking about suspects. If not Chester Weger, then who? Two people in particular stand out from the rest. Let's begin. Handwritten police notes dating to the weeks and months following the triple homicide at Starve Rock State Park indicate that hundreds of people were questioned. A spectrum of characters, ranging from the women's restroom attendant at the lodge to known sex offenders from as far away as Chicago and interstate truck drivers, were all given the third degree and pressed as to their whereabouts on the afternoon of Monday, March 14th. Most interviews consisted of a few pages of notes, or in some cases, a couple of paragraphs. But two suspects in particular stand out from the pack for the sheer bizarreness of their statements and actions. George Spiros and Gerald Nemke. Hey, Whitney. So today on episode four, I want to talk about some of the suspects. You know, I uh, we are making the case that Chester Weger did not commit these murders, breaking down the crime scene, why the evidence doesn't link to him, why the confession doesn't make any sense. So then the obvious question is, well, if not Chester, then who? Well, there are some other suspects and theories. One of the persons I want to talk about is Gerald Nemke. Gerald Nemke is, was he 17 years old at the time in 1960? 16. Here's the thing about him that was particularly of interest. I always said, why on the world does somebody, whoever, why does somebody bash these three women's skulls in? You know, so they're basically unrecognizable. Like, like who does that? Like, like how does that happen? Well, here's what's interesting about Gerald Nemke. Uh, and correct me on the dates if I'm wrong, but like about a month after the Starve Rock murders, Gerald Nemke happens to be a young boy, juvenile delinquent, who's staying at the Marseille Youth Camp near Starve Rock. Somehow he gets a weekend pass. He goes to Chicago. He goes out with this girl. She was a waitress. She's like hit a young girl. And they go out together. And her body is found on railroad tracks, ironically, probably not even 20 minutes from where I live in the Chicago area, very close to where I grew up. And this is what was striking about it. Her face is bashed in. One of the things he used was a brick to bash her face in. And I thought, oh my God, this is somebody, okay, who was living near Starve Rock, at the time of the murders, it's a month later, and he bashes this girl's face in with a brick. Like that to me is very similar to what happened to these ladies. And so that's what really caught my eye is that the method of them being killed was so similar. Yeah, I am so intrigued by Jerry Nemke. So, so 
the person of Gerald Nemke was not on my radar until you brought him up to me. So in doing the research into this case, his name pops up here and there, but not really ever as a serious suspect. Uh, He's dismissed pretty early because he has an alibi in that he was at the boys camp uh, between the hours of one and four on Monday, March 14th. But if if that's not the time of the crime, his alibi is pretty much irrelevant. But he did. He got pretty much eliminated and I think fell through the cracks of even being considered as a suspect for the most part, because within a month of the crime, he had escaped from the boys camp, commits a heinous murder is arrested and then sentenced to the electric chair. So why I even know he's part of this story is actually because of you. You had submitted uh, a FOIA uh, and in the papers that came back from the state police, there was a drawing that had been taken out of his locker when they searched all the boys' foot lockers at the uh, boys' camp. And there was a diagram in his locker that, you know, what the diagram is of. Super weird diagram. Will you describe it? Describe the diagram for me. Well, it's it's got like three shapes, and I can't remember if they're like triangles or rectangles, and then there's like letters inside the shapes, and then there's arrows pointing up and going in certain directions. It's weird, but what struck me is that there's three of them. There's three of these shapes with arrows, and I know there's three victims. So, And the fact that the note got collected and put in a file shows you that investigators thought it was something of interest. If they'd have just found a comic book in his locker, right? They're not going to necessarily, you might not know that, but it's something like, it sounds like they traced it. If you look at that document, they traced it and it's in the file. So it's weird. I don't know what it means. And I don't see anything, what, what I don't see in the file, I know the file I have that Andy Hale has is not complete. I know that there were, thousands of more pages there had to have been in this investigation and who knows where those documents are now but i have seen no documents there's no interview i've seen with gerald nemke there's no polygraph report with gerald nemke there is interestingly uh, i believe a hair sample collected and preserved of gerald nemke so it shows you you know a hair was collected but i've seen nothing that shows why he would have been dismissed as a subject. You know, when he has this clear case of a murder where a woman gets her skull bashed in. Unlike, let me just say, people like to make all this big deal about Chester Uyghur's juvenile record, these alleged sexual assaults, okay? This is my response to that. Let's just say that that's all true. Let's just, let's just, I'll give you the, let's just say it's all true for benefit of argument. The three women were not sexually assaulted. They weren't raped. So the fact that Chester Weger, if the argument is he sexually assaulted somebody before, so what? If you'd have come to me and said, hey, you know what? Chester Weger on two other occasions bashed a woman's skull in in a state park, or, or I'd be like, oh, geez. Well, that's pretty serious, and that's pretty significant. There's nothing about these alleged sexual assaults that has any relevance to this crime, but... With Gerald Nemke, yeah, it's the same kind of violence inflicted upon this woman, this young girl, that is inflicted upon these three women. And, oh, by the way, you happen to be living nearby? So, I mean, yeah, Gerald Nemke raises a huge a huge eyebrow for me. I mean, for sure. Well, with Jerry Nemke, you 
sent me this this drawing, this tracing that was in the FOIA from his footlocker. And I started to do some digging. So if you will indulge me, can I give you a little bit of his his bio here? Because yeah. as I'm researching his bio, I, I, I don't know that I've ever uh, come across someone who has sort of jumped off the page quite as much as just such a creep, uh, such a sinister person. Go for it. So Jerry Nimke, as I said, is perhaps the most sinister character in the entire saga. So he's born in 1943 in Chicago. His father dies when he's three years old. And by the time he's seven, he has logged his first arrest for city curfew violation. This is going to be the first in a monumentally long rap sheet. Now, by the age of 10, this is in 1953, he's arrested for truancy and being a runaway. Then the next year, he's arrested again for larceny of a kid's bicycle. A month after that, now (laughs) wrap your mind around this, he's 11 years old at this point. He is arrested for selling oral sex to older men in a Chicago park. He is 11 years old and picked up for prostitution. Oh my gosh. So the men were prosecuted, but Nemke, because he's 11, uh, he gets put under the family court supervision for a year. This court supervision seems to make no difference because by the age of 12, he's arrested with a group of older boys in conjunction with a burglary. Uh, He's not charged with this crime because he's not charged with the burglary because he is so young. He's he's still 12. So he's taken back to his mother, runs away from home less than a month later. And now at this point, because he's just considered incorrigible, he's sent to the parental school for delinquents. But he proved to be a troublemaker there. So by the age of 14 in 1957, he's placed in the custody of the Illinois Youth Commission He's sent to the Illinois State Training School for Boys in Kane County. Now, after a brief return home to live with his mom, he gets arrested again, this time for auto theft. And now he's sent to a more secure facility, which is the St. Charles School for Boys. Now, something seems to change in his pattern of behavior here because his, quote, good behavior at the St. Charles School earns him parole in June of 1958. But by December of that same year, he's arrested yet again. This time for robbing a girl he'd met up with. Apparently he was quite the charmer. And he he meets up with a, a girl, robs her, assaults her, steals her clothes, and then wearing her clothes, walks into a liquor store where he steals a pack of cigarettes on a lark. That's what he said in trial, on a lark. He, he decided to wear women's clothing and rob a liquor store. He's now 15, almost 16. He's a ward of the state. And he's back at St. Charles School for Boys in Rock Island. He's given a psychiatric evaluation. This is in April of 1959. And the report said that he was, quote, not considered to be a sexually dangerous person. Now, we know later he turns out to be a very sexually dangerous person. But at least uh, at 15, 16, the psychiatrist says, oh, no, he's not a sexually dangerous person. And he was deemed no longer to be a threat to society and granted parole once again. Three months later. He is arrested for larceny, steals a car. He's sent to the Industrial School for Boys at Sheridan, which was a maximum security youth detention center just up the river from Star Rock State Park, actually. So because he's now charmed the warden and guards and demonstrated such model behavior at the Sheridan School for Boys, they put in a recommendation for him to be transferred to the boys' youth camp at Marseille, the one that's just up the road from from the state park, from Star Rock State Park. So the stated mission of this camp for boys that he's sent to is to, quote, take bad city habits out of the boy by taking him into the country, working him hard and reshaping his way of living. 
it does not appear that they were successful in their mission when it came to to Gerald Nemke, because by March of 1960, at the age of 16, he's he's under the supervision of the wardens. On the day of the murders, if the murders happened on March 14th, 1960, Jerry Nemke claims he has an alibi. He says that, uh, so they did question him. The, the authorities did come and question him along with the other boys. And when he was questioned as to his whereabouts, he said he had an alibi. He said he was just sitting around the camp. But then he curiously added this. He said, you know, one person could have done it, but it wasn't me. <laughs> then he goes on That's to weird. brag, right? Okay, That's let's pause weird. there, right? I'm right. being questioned by the police. And I'm like, I don't really know the details of this murder, sir. But, um, you know, what I don't know about, I'm going to offer some expertise on. Yeah. Well, one person could have done it, but it wasn't me. It <laughs> wasn't me, sir. It's an odd thing to say. <laughs> it's, it's very odd. So then he goes on to brag that he would get bored frequently and go for walks. And whenever he got tired of walking, he would steal a car. And then he brags further that he's estimated that he stole about 200 cars over the course of his life. So law enforcement were suspicious enough of him that they did take a hair sample of his along with fibers from his socks. Uh, okay. And I think, I mean, that is a very strange background and it's, it's sad. I mean, the, the, the childhood he had, that prostitution claim when he was young, all that is um, a very troubling rap sheet. And none of that probably alone would have been enough to make me think, you know, he's a prime suspect, but Oh yeah, and by the way, he bashed a girl's skull in a month after the Star Rock murders. So I mean, it's oh like, yeah, we're not even done yet. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's the point. It's like I always say, who could do something like this? Because I just, you know, it's it's just such a violent, senseless, horrific crime. The answer is well. Jerry Nemke apparently is someone who could do something like this because he did it to this young girl a month later. Well, let me give you the details of what happened. So he apparently is a charmer and he charms the guards and the superintendent of this boys camp in Marseille to the extent that they give him a, a pass to go home to take his mother to church on Easter. So that would have been uh, April 17th of 1960. So this is just almost exactly a month after the murders. He's supposed to report back never does. So he goes AWOL from the boys camp. Then where he is for the next week or so is, is, uh, is unclear. However, he shows back up on the radar because on the morning of April 30th, a teenage waitress named Marilyn Ray Duncan, she's 16 years old, is found in the rail yards outside of Chicago, partially dressed. So this is an interesting detail, right? She's, she's splayed out in this sort of spread eagle position her clothing is torn and her head is completely obliterated, bashed in to the point her ear is severed. Ugh, and so God. she is she is not dead. She is still alive. They take her to the hospital. Unfortunately, she never regains consciousness and she dies two days later. But he is found the next day because he's picked up for driving another stolen car. He is put on trial, and within a couple months, he's found guilty and sentenced to the electric chair. So he holds the record, actually, for the youngest person to be sentenced to the electric chair wow. in the state of Illinois. No, it's shockingly similar, you know, that the body is kind of partially clothed and the amount of violence to the face with a blunt object. And then you combine it with the fact that he lived in a nearby youth camp. I mean, how can he not be a prime suspect? 
We also need to point out that a camp counselor and a group of boys from that same youth camp are the ones who found the bodies of the three women in St. Louis Canyon. I think he falls out of the suspect pool because they were married to the notion that the murder had to be the afternoon of March 14th, and he had an alibi for that that afternoon. But if, again, if our timeline for when the actual murders took place is not that three-hour window on the afternoon of March 14th, then he doesn't have an alibi. I, I just would like to know a lot more about this because I don't know what he could tell me if I were to be the detective investigating him. What could he possibly tell me that I would say, oh, well, you can strike him off the list? You know, I mean, like, what could he possibly tell you that all your doubt would disappear other than some ironclad alibi, which I just find doubtful because I just can't. How can you totally prove you were where you were that day where there's all these boys there? I don't know. Well, and especially when that boys camp had a standard practice of having the boys go out into the woods and work as sort of park rangers. So it's not like there were eyes on these boys 24-7. I mean, I mean, it was it was not that type of organization. I want to know why he got ruled out because I just find the nature of that poor young girl who was killed, that just gives me goosebumps and makes the hair on my arm stand up. The only thing I'll say in response to that, though, is, and I'm going to talk about this in other episodes, is kind of the difference between, you know, is it a random attack or is it premeditated? I do think it's a little bit different when you're talking about three. And I still go back to, we're going to take a deeper dive into this in another episode. But what I, what I still think is significance is you have three. You know, it's like, you don't have just one person killed. You know, you have three. It's so different. It's like, it's like you may have somebody who gets raped. It's one person. Have you ever heard of three people getting raped simultaneously? I mean, you may have one person randomly killed three people together randomly killed it's just something that's always nagged at me but you cannot dismiss the kind of modus operandi of the nature of that killing by jerry nemke a month later on this poor 16 year old girl i mean it just it's like a wow moment yeah well marilyn ray young unfortunately is not going to be the only woman in Jerry Nemke's vicinity that ends up dead. So his story actually goes on. He he was sentenced to the electric chair. His, the Supreme Court of Illinois commutes that sentence. He gets a second trial. He gets sentenced to life in prison. And very strangely, uh, a week after he's sentenced to life, the foreman of the jury, in his case, uh, has his house burned down. It's attributed to arson. His wife and young daughter are killed in it. And when he's questioned by the police as to who would have a motive to burn your house down and do this to you, he said, well, the only enemy I have that I can think of is Jerry Nemke. I was just the foreman in his murder trial. Very weird. Right. Very weird. And there's another weird coincidence here. J. Donald Knapp, the guy that was the foreman in, in uh, Jerry Nemke's murder trial, his boss was Herman Oding at the Illinois Bell Telephone Company. Oh my gosh. Herman Oding the husband of Lillian Odin, who was one of the three victims. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. It's just that is very weird. It's just weird. I, I, I don't sure. know what to do with it either. But then, okay, so Jerry Nimke gets sentenced to life somehow because, again, this pattern of good behavior makes him friends on the inside. He's out of prison by the time he's 35. 
and he gets married. So he marries this lovely hospital nutritionist named uh, Lee Rotorari. They get divorced a year later, but then they get married again. And then to try to support them, she moves down to Council Bluffs, Iowa, where she takes a job and he's going to follow her. She's, she's there in a motel for, for a few weeks trying to get their life set up. He never makes it there. She is found on the morning of June 25th, 1982, murdered in her motel room. She is in a pool of blood, multiple stab wounds to the chest. Again, Jerry Nemke claims he had an alibi. The case went cold and her case to this day remains the most infamous unsolved mystery in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I, like I said, he, you know, when you have your suspect list, he has to be at the top of the list as, as a suspect because of the nature of, of this other, you know, incredibly violent murder that he committed. There's just no way around it. And we have one of his hairs. Potentially we could test that hair with hairs found at the crime scene. Now, again, I go back to, like we said last episode, there's two types of hair found on the victims. So, you know, that is inconsistent with a single killer theory. But who knows? I always say in these cases, there's more to the story. You don't know exactly how it happened. You don't know how exactly it played out. But Gerald Nemke, and I, when I looked him up, when I found him, and I tracked him down somewhere in Florida, he was living when he died. And it wasn't that long ago. It was just, it was like within the last few years, I think. Yeah. He died um, in 2019. And it's interesting. His last Facebook post is creepy. His last Facebook post? So one of his last Facebook posts, I looked him up. Uh, this is on March 3rd of 2017. He wrote, would love to know who has pictures of me. I thought I was doing a good job of sneaking through this world quietly. That is really creepy. I would have loved to have knocked on his door and talked to him. God, I was just a little bit too late. Dang. He probably keeps me awake more than any of our our other potential suspects because there is just something so sinister about him on every You know the level. thing about it too is, I mean, it's very easy to go through life being kind of naive. It's like I went back, I was able to get actually on eBay some original press photos from 1960 of Gerald Dempke after his arrest at his trial. This guy's kind of this young, handsome kid. And if you looked at him, you can't imagine, you know, he would have committed a crime like this. And, and then when you hear about what he did to this poor 16-year-old girl, you just cannot wrap your head around how and why somebody does that, right? Because I always said, who kills three these three women? Well, Jerry Nemke killed this 16-year-old girl uh, the way he did. So there are people out there, unfortunately, and it's scary, who do do these things. The other person I want to talk about, we mentioned him at the end of the last episode, was George Spiros. Mm -hmm. uh, the park, as we have said, was the leaseholder was Nick Spiros, kind of ran the lodge. Uh, his son was George in 1960. I think he would have been, what was he in his, was he in his late 20s? He would have been 28. Okay. And he is somebody that clearly law enforcement spoke to. He was a person of interest. I guess you could say that. There's multiple polygraphs. As I said in the last episode, they collected the red fibers from his sweater. Uh, he's somebody who was familiar with the park grounds. Tell me why you think he should be considered a suspect and what is it about him that kind of makes you think you know that he is on the suspect list yeah george spiros is 
sort of in in a way the the antithesis of Jerry Nemke because you know you've got Jerry Nemke as this suave calculating sinister creature George Spiros appears by all accounts to have been a man who was potentially on the autism spectrum. Um, so he was he was born in the park, actually. I mean, he was born nearby hospital, but he, he was raised in the park. His dad was the, for all intents and purposes, the owner and operator of the Starved Rock State Park. He had the lease from the state. And so when he's born, he, he grows up in the, in the shadow of, of the lodge. He spends his entire youth running through the woods. So he knows that park like the back of his hand. Now, according to some family members that I spoke to and other reports, he had behavioral difficulties in his youth. He was described as being difficult. And so by the time he's a preteen, his mom, uh, Frances, decides to leave Nick, the father, and leave George behind with the father. And she moves in with her wealthy family in Evanston. And so George is a troubled boy who is socially awkward, apparently has these meltdowns. And so to deal with that, his dad, Nick Spiro, sends him to Culver Military Academy, where at Culver Military Academy, which is this elite prep school uh, in Indiana, they teach George to channel all of his emotional meltdowns into boxing and physical conditioning. So by 1950, George Spiros is the Golden Gloves boxing champion for his division. And um, I found this this photo of him in his high school yearbook where it's also kind of creepy where he's boxing and the caption for the photograph of him is George Spiro stalks his prey in the ring. Mm. So after graduation, he goes on to Northwestern and the University of Illinois. And then by 1953, he's he's back at the lodge where he's his dad's assistant. And then between 1953 and 1960, he's described by many people with pretty interesting uh, adjectives and adverbs. Uh, People say he lurked. He was a lurker. He was constantly seen lurking. He had a very hard time maintaining eye contact. He was socially awkward. He would sneak up on people and sort of just watch them working, um, sometimes through the windows in the rooms. And so he, he got this reputation of being just this odd fellow that people sort of avoided. And so even though he was, you know, if you look at still photographs of him, this classically handsome young man, he's the son of the most powerful man in the county. There's no reports of him having any friends, girlfriends even. Uh, rumors kind of started to swirl apparently that he might in fact be be gay. Uh, none of that can really be substantiated. Um, but another rumor that's maybe relevant here is that he had such a difficult time making friends that he would often use his dad's money to pay people to be his friends. But let me, and let me pause people- you there. Let me pause you. I mean, I get all that. And, and let's just say he's a strange guy. He's a weird guy. He's a lurker. He's a loner. I personally, me, like, so why? Why would George Spiros, you know, why is he going to kill three ladies? A, just kill them, right? And, and B... Why is he going to bludgeon them to death where it's a park where he lives and his dad runs it? Like, I personally have never been as, I mean, a lot of people out there in the theories like George Spiros is one of the names you hear talked about. To me, I still struggle with like the why, like Gerald Nemke makes sense, right? Like I'll say who could do this. Okay. You could say, well, you know who could do it? Gerald Nemke because he did it to somebody else. Yeah, George Spiros, it's like. You know, okay, he's a weird dude, but like, you know, there's a lot of weird people out there. Like, I, I, I just, 
I, I need more. Like, okay. make the case for me more because I'm not me, quite there yet. <laughs> so, give- so one of the the theories again about him being, uh, you know, kind of a weird guy is that he he paid people to be his friends, and the two people that. Yeah. All right, but okay. Yeah, but like, okay. so what? So, so here's what? the thing. I mean, three ladies. Let me, let me, Whitney. Three ladies got, got bludgeoned to death in a state park. So okay. okay? So let, let so me like, jump. So to... there's got to be a stronger case, George Spiros. Like I, I don't. I got I, I'm not getting it. So here's, so here's, here's why I, I think about him on the day in question on April 14th, the the alleged day of the murders. His alibi was that he was driving to Evanston, Illinois, to visit his mom and her two sisters. And when I was doing some research for this, I was trying to build out a big family tree and I'm clicking and putting pictures from the public archives and I glance up and, and maybe it's just because I'm tired, but I glance up and I thought I was looking at a picture of Lillian, Mildred and, and Francis. I thought I was looking at a picture of the three victims and I realized I was looking at a picture of George Spiros's mother and her two sisters. They are three women. His alibi that day is that he's driving to visit his mom and her two sisters who are doppelgangers for the three women in the park. And I find it interesting that his alibi doesn't completely match the facts. He is late, supposedly getting to Evanston, Illinois. So he leaves the park at one, He doesn't get to Evanston until four. And then when he's pressed on, well, why were you on the road that long? Why are you missing for an hour? He's got a bunch of different stories. He stopped at a bookstore, who knows? But what's intriguing to me is, how, look at the damage that was done to the women. The blows that took their lives were blows dealt to the face. George was the golden glove boxing champion who had been taught to channel all of his rage into his fists. And he knew those woods like the back of his hand and he was physically strong. Yeah, I I mean, I always keep it real. I always give you my honest opinion. I'm not persuaded. There's nothing I know of in his background that that shows he had a, a propensity for violence. The women, you know, if you look, there's there's the camera was used to as a murder weapon. The binoculars were used as a murder weapon. A tree branch was were used as a murder weapon. You know, not not fists. You know, I mean, like if he just punched them all to death, you wouldn't have had those objects that had blood and hair on them. You know, like I get it. Like I get the whole weird background, and I've heard the stories of people that knew him and met him, and the weirdness. But I'm just, you know, and I'm just giving you my personal opinion. It just never made as much sense to me about why George Spiros is walking through the woods and comes upon these three women and A, has to kill them. B, has to beat them to a pulp. Like, I don't know. I'm just, you know, this this is the good part about a podcast. I mean, we don't have to agree on everything. And uh, I just... I just never personally, because I've had a lot of people come to me and be like, George Sparrows, George Sparrows. Mm-hmm. And I'm just being honest with you, you know? Let me tell you my my thought on George Spiros. I think it's very easy for people to point a finger at him because he was a strange guy. And it's easy for us to go, oh, he lurks, he's awkward. Okay, you know, he did it. I actually don't, in my heart, think that it was him. But I think that the police were drawn to thinking that it was him for obvious reasons, like the physical strength, the familiarity with the woods, the awkward behavior. And I think because he was the son of the most powerful man in the county, I think the police felt that he could not be pursued as a suspect and they needed to pursue someone. So when George comes in and tells them, "Uh, I don't know why I think it is this, but I'm pretty sure it's Chester and Stanley, 
I think that's why it gets redirected to Stanley. So I think there's a world where Gerald Nemke did this, falls through the cracks. They assume it's George Spiros, but can't put it on George Spiros because of his connections, his father. And so Chester becomes the scapegoat. That's what my gut tells me. I could be proven wrong. I am open to any possibility. Well, I'll say two things. Um, So I want to qualify one thing I said. Just because somebody doesn't have a known background doesn't mean, A, that they haven't done something bad and violent. You don't know. I mean, for all I know, George Sparrows had something in his past uh, of a violence nature. I don't know. And even if you don't, maybe there's a first for everything. So um, that's not necessarily, I guess, a super persuasive reason for saying it's not George Sparrows. But I will say this. This is the most intriguing part. I actually think because he's the son of Nick Spiros, I actually think that's going to work to his benefit. And I would think that local law authorities probably would be like like not putting him super high in the list right away. But why do they collect the sweaters? Why do they take the fibers? I haven't seen, I mean, that that to me is really intriguing. Like, I feel like maybe there's something else about George Spiros that we don't know that was learned during the investigation because clearly when, it's not like, you know, a lot of people got polygraphed. Everybody that worked at the lodge got polygraphed. So the fact that George Sparrows gave a polygraph, so what? But you've got these memos where they're talking about his alibi. He's interviewed more than once and they're collecting these fibers. So clearly there is something about him that makes law enforcement want to pursue him. So I just think there might be more to George Sparrows than we know about. And that's why he's still on my list of suspects, because the police obviously thought he was a suspect. And, you know, there's I think there's more to it. We just don't know what it was. Yeah, I I think there's a lot more to it. I mean, we know that after he falls off the radar as a suspect, his dad sends him to Greece for seven years. So George conveniently leaves before the trial. So George George goes to Greece for seven years. He comes back, leads a very uneventful life, and then ultimately commits suicide. Well, I want to talk about that because I don't think we can talk about George Spiros with at least discussing the circumstances of his death. And so here's, here's kind of the, uh, the strange part of that. I think it's in 2004, am I right, where Donna Kelly mm-hmm. was Chester Weger's court-appointed lawyer. I'm sorry, 2005. 2005. She files a brief with the court that lays out arguments on why Chester Weger is innocent and basically points the finger at George Spiros as being somebody who may be involved. And I think within months of that filing, I believe, is when he commits suicide. Now, you hear a lot of people out there who I, who I think are skeptical of the circumstances of his death. I can tell you this. I did a FOIA for the police reports about his death. And it is weird, I got to say, because he is, he is found at the time at home. He is sitting at a computer. I think he is naked from the waist down. There's a bag of groceries, I think, on the kitchen counter. The dog is also shot and killed. It's a very weird scene. A lot of people out there think he may have been the uh, subject of foul play, but 
There's also apparently uh, George Spiros had cancer at the time. Uh, I think it was throat cancer. And others have said he was despondent about that. And that was the reason he took his own life. I don't know. I can just tell you, though, it's weird the way he was found. Uh, if you're going to commit suicide, you know you're going to be found. To be found the way he was is weird. So I, I, I just think there's a lot to it. I, 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 uh, there's a lot more to dig into with him. I, I, it just we could, I could spend a whole year just going down that rabbit trail, you know? Yeah, I mean, going back to, to, to his suicide, uh, he, the reason that they even checked on him was he had missed a doctor's appointment for, for oral cancer, as you'd mentioned. When the police show up at his doorstep, the front door is standing open and there's a gigantic bag of dog food and a gigantic bag of ice cream and the ice cream is melting on the front porch. You go inside and apparently the faucets are on. There's a broken coffee mug on the counter, the coffee all over the counter. Then upstairs, he's sitting at his computer, pants off, and he's used one gun to shoot the dog who he's apparently just bought three months supplies worth of dog food for. And then he has used a different gun to shoot himself in the mouth. Strange. And it's just, yeah, it, everything about it feels weird. It does. And the timing also, I mean, I get the cancer part, but it's also kind of interesting that this is coming, you know, on the heels of a publicly filed brief that's kind of pointing things at his direction. So it's such a tight timeline that he, on April 30th, 2005, Donna Kelly actually went and spoke to the state. Uh, about him and the interest in looking into him again as a suspect, he killed himself on May second. May second, three days. Yeah, oh that's my three days. God, I didn't realize it was so close. Yeah, that is that's really that's really pretty weird. I mean, hmm, that's a that's a super intriguing. There, there is a lot there. Yeah, there is a lot there. I just think that's very suspicious. You know, there are other suspects. Obviously, I mean, there are in the file. There are dozens, hundreds of leads. I mean, there's all kinds of potential suspects out there. So I do not want to in any way indicate like, you know, there's only two. There's so many leads in the file and tips, hitchhikers, people with records coming through town. I mean, all kinds of stuff. But I think what we've tried to highlight on this podcast are, I think, two of the two of the bigger ones most discussed. George Spiros is clearly one of the most discussed. And Gerald Nemke is kind of under the radar screen, uh, although I think he's got some very compelling circumstances with that other murder. And we could talk more about it, but those are those are kind of some of the key suspects. But what I want to talk about in an upcoming episode, and this would be my segue to end this one, is the theory of randomness versus premeditated, right? So under the theories we've talked about today, with both Chester Weger, Gerald Nemke, and George Spiros, it's random. It is this stumble upon these women something happens there's a chance encounter and the women are killed i actually am more of the camp of premeditation and i'm going to just leave it at that and you're going to have to tune into that episode where i can make my case on why uh, we talked about suspects today but there's a lot more i want to talk about with the argument of premeditation which would not be any of the people we talked about it'd be something completely different so that's coming down the road. You're going to have to stay tuned. Another good episode, Whitney. I'm looking to kind of continue in the journey with you. Me too. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I enjoyed talking about some of the other suspects, George Spiros and Gerald Nemke. 
But I've got some other thoughts in terms of how I think this happened. We haven't talked about that yet. That's coming up in a future episode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And if you want more information about today's episode, visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com. We're going to be posting documents, photos, information. If you want more detail, that's where you can go. Check it out. Email us if you have a tip, if you know anything about the Starrock murders, if you heard anything, or if you know somebody that you think is wrongfully convicted, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis, sound designed by Studio D, and hosted by myself and Whitney Brock. We'll see you next time.